This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to Money and Markets. We're back from our summer break. We hope you had a nice summer. It wasn't a quiet one in the markets, and we're back just as the news agenda is hotting up again, much like the weather. With me today is Danny Houston. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. Yeah, we've got lots of market news to cover off, and I'll deliver an update on what happened over the summer and also the latest on Wilco's collapse, MS heading back to the FTSE 100, and the surprising company that's become Europe's most valuable. We've also got news out from Barrett Homes that's hot off the press and gives an insight into the housing market in the UK. And off the back of that, I'll be giving an update on the mortgage market. And we've got the date for the autumn statement. So we'll be giving you a lowdown on what that means and why it matters. On top of that, our interview today is with James Wooten, partner and global co-head of Linklater's Equities Capital Markets, about the planned changes to listing rules in the UK and what that means for investors. It feels like a while since I've said this, but let's kick off with the market's news. So, Danny, anything big from over the summer that we need to know about if people have been off sunning themselves and not keeping an eagle eye on markets news? Well, if you take a look at how markets performed in the month of August, then you're likely just to want to turn the page and ignore it. S&P 500 down 1.7%, NASDAQ down 2.1%, and the FTSE 100 down 3.38% in the month of August. Now, September so far... It's all looking pretty flat. But the reason that we saw so much volatility through August was, to be honest with you, a lot of the same old story that we have been dealing with through most of the year. Obviously, investors still completely tied up with whether or not we're going to get any more interest rate hikes. We're going to talk more about interest and inflation later on. But certainly, the Jackson Hole Symposium um, didn't deliver huge surprises. I think investors were pretty much expecting everything that um, Fed chair said, but still there's an awful lot of uncertainty about whether or not a soft landing is going to be achieved for the US economy and what's going to happen in Europe and, of course, what's going to happen here in the UK as well. Now, all the big companies that look to China are really still in turbulent times. Huge growth fears about China, huge fears about the property sector. Um, We had updates from Country Garden, um, which really looked pretty bleak. And things apparently appear to be at a point of turning around again. The Chinese government has brought in a certain amount of stimulus. There is expectation that there'll be even more stimulus in property markets. And that has turned things around a little bit. So in terms of those miners, um, we've seen a sort of uptick for them. But I think really one of the biggest stories over the summer has to be NVIDIA. I mean, the chip giant, the expectation that when it delivered its results, they were going to be good. I don't think anyone expected to get quite the results that we got. So the most recent quarter, we saw uh, sales 
double what they were last year. This is the first chip maker to achieve a $1 trillion valuation. The expectation is that the third quarter is going to be pretty stonking as well. I mean, seriously, above expectations. And this is all about AI. Investors are hugely excited about what AI has the potential to bring. And that is really filtering through to the performance of this company. I mean, I was looking at how much shares have gone up by 232% year to date shares in NVIDIA are up by, which just sort of goes to show the impact that the AI story is having on investors' expectations. It's not been such a a good story for all the chip makers. Um, You know, NVIDIA set the bar incredibly high. So uh, actually, when we got uh, a a fairly decent update from Broadcom, um, its shares actually fell because by comparison, investors were pretty disappointed. But that's enough to get started, don't you think, Laura? Definitely highlights what a busy summer everyone has had. But one of the other big stories um, from this summer was the news of Wilco's collapse, which will obviously saddened many fans of the high street store. But can you just give an update on where we're at with that collapse and what's happened to the stores and the assets and the brand? Yeah, I mean, over 400 stores 12,500 employees. I mean, this is a company which has been around for an awful lot of years and will leave a huge hole on the high street. And as it stands, it it is going to leave a hole. So where we are at the moment is that um, 52 stores are going to close. Um, That's what administrators have said in the last couple of days. So that means 24 will close on the 12th of September, 28 on the 14th of September. Um, 1,332 workers have been made redundant. That's on top of almost 300 uh, from a couple of weeks ago. There is a bit of good news in all of this. So 51 of those snores have been bought by B&M. It's a £13 million deal. Now, those stores are expected now to be rebranded. They'll be pulled into the B&M empire. It's not expected to be an issue with regulators. So we're expecting an update from B&M in the autumn about how that is going. Will Wilco stay on the high street? Will it leave huge scars? Can any of the jobs be saved? There is still a glimmer of hope that Doug Putman, who is the guy that rescued HMV, um, he's Canadian, he was looking at buying 300 of the stores. Where we stand at the moment, we think that that's not a goer, but potentially he could take on 200 of the stores. Now, if he does, he has a track record for turning around ailing retailers, for really sort of figuring out what the USP is and for making it work as a retail place to visit. And that is something which Wilco has not had in a long time. It's had to deal with huge competition, with the fact that it doesn't have parking. Most of its locations are in city centre. And if you think about the kind of stuff you buy from the likes of Home Bargains and the Range and that kind of establishment, which is its competitors, 
then a lot of it is bulk buying. You know, you're buying like 40 toilet rolls or something like that. So you want to be able to get it straight in the car. And Wilco hasn't been able to offer that to customers. So it's been a real loss. I mean, unions are incredibly angry. GMB, which represents uh, several thousand workers, is furious about how the whole thing has been handled from how the bosses dealt with the whole store in the run-up to this collapse and also how administrators have dealt with things as it has gone on. But the story has another chapter to run yet. And sticking with the high street, everyone's favourite high street store, M&S, has creeped back into the FTSE 100 index. So how has it managed that? It's had quite the roller coaster ride over the years M&S have of falling in and out of favour. And it feels like now it's having quite a good spot. It is in quite a good spot. I mean, when was the last time you were in an M&S? I am now of the age where I love M&S. I like the food, I like the clothes, I like the kids' clothes, the home stuff is good, and that definitely ages me, and I'm okay with that. Well, it does age you, but it also doesn't, because M&S have made a real effort to turn themselves around. So it does a brilliant range of sportswear now, which even younger people than yourself, and you are still young, Laura, but younger people than yourself go for. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the home stuff is brilliant. And food, which has always been a real sort of shiny spot for the company, they've made a real concerted effort to offer value ranges as well, to compete, even with some of the discounters, to get people through the doors. But it was back in 2019 Sales and profits slid. I mean, absolutely horrendous. Huge competition from the likes of the supermarkets and Primark. And M&S had really lost its sparkle, particularly when it came to clothing. It went on a, a massive change. It got rid of a number of stores. It was focusing on stores that were really working for it. Again, those out-of-town um, outlets were you know, people could could go and they could park and they could shop. And it has now delivered a really decent return on that investment. So if we're looking at last year's figures um, to the 1st of April this year, then uh, profits, pre-tax profits up 21%. I mean, that's incredible. Sales up 9.6% to nearly 12 billion. Uh, and its shares up this year so far up by 81% year to date. And that effectively has um, upped its um, the amount that it's worth to $4.4 billion, um, and it has given it another chance to return to the FTSE 100 as part of the quarterly reshuffle. It will be back in the blue chip index from the 18th of September, House Builder Persimmon is making way. It's going into the FTSE 250. We'll talk a bit more about housing in a bit. Um, so that really is a bright spot for retail. It just goes to show that you can, even in a time when we're talking about a cost of living crisis, we're talking about high labour costs, if you get the recipe right, if you are giving your customer what it wants, then you will get people through the doors. And Marks and Spencer has just absolutely delivered that in spades. 
And while we're talking retail, I also just wanted to talk about Superdry because its shares fell to the lowest level since its market float on Monday after it released its latest earnings figures. Now, they were delayed. Um, Shares were suspended, we're told, because of an accounting snafu. But um, when they were released, they announced a pre-tax loss of $21.7 million. That is from a reported profit the year before of $21.6 billion. So, I mean, serious hard times for Superdry. Now, Julian Dunkerton, the boss, um, came back in as CEO because he thought that the people that had been running the company had run the brand into the dirt, basically, you know, made it garish, didn't have a, a decent USP. And he has done an incredible job turning things around. And the sales um, for the last lot of earnings were, were really quite good. But these are expensive products. Its customer tends to be like my daughter, who is an absolute fan of Superdry, but she can't afford more than the odd thing from there. So most of her wardrobe is cheaper stuff, and then she'll buy one thing from there. And when you're in a situation like that, if you've got a cost of living crisis, that is an issue. Add to that the fact that this is a company that's had to borrow a chunk of cash at high interest rates, and a lot of investors are really wondering when Superdry is finally going to make good on its turnaround because it's not looking anywhere near as sparkly as M&S right now. Now, we're always talking about the housing market in this country, a nation obsessed with property. But it is, once again, a hot topic at the moment. So there's fears of price falls, news of transaction volumes dropping, and mortgage rates are still high. We had results from Barrett Homes today, and that's always a really good indicator to get a little insight into the housing market because, of course, they're selling lot of new build properties and so it's that first indicator of some of the troubles that might be brewing in the housing market. So what little signs did we get, Danny? You can definitely say that there may be trouble ahead. Um, adjusted pre-tax profits down 16.2% to $884 million. Uh, The number of completed home sales fell 3.9% to just over 17,000. Um, that's in the year to the 30th of June. But I think the key number here is what they are expecting to build, the number of completions for the year now expected to be in the range of around 13 to around 14,000, where just in September last year, they were talking about 16 to 17,000. And that was in the wake of the mini budget. Now, can you believe it has been almost a year since the mini budget. I know. It's madness. So much has happened in that time, but yet so much happened in about the three weeks after that mini budget as well. <laughs> it certainly did. Well, what they're saying is that basically people are not able now to afford mortgages because mortgages have gone absolutely through the roof, that there is a lack of confidence and that short-term demand has been seriously impacted by mortgage affordability challenge. And 
What's really interesting is they were talking about the impact that the mini budget had on the business as a whole. It put a hiring freeze in place immediately afterwards. So over the the year between September last year and June this year, its headcount fell by 6%. So if you've got less people working, clearly you can build less housing. And the company says, look, we are in a situation where we know that there is demand for more housing. We need more housing in the UK. But right now, the way the market looks, it doesn't look like it's in a good place to build more housing. Now, its shares have fallen, although we have seen them actually up 7% this year. And a lot of that is down to the expectation that the regulatory environment is going to soften. We had uh, Michael Gove saying that he's going to scrap something called the nutrient neutrality law, which uh, impacts um, where homes can be built near waterways. There's been a lot of anger about that from environmental campaigners. But the government says that by doing that, potentially it could release around 100,000 homes to be built um, very quickly, um, which, of course, is something that we need. But the key is, where do you build those homes and will they be affordable homes? Because right now, with mortgages the way they are, that is what people are crying out for. Yeah, and mortgage rates have been on that big climb up that we saw, but they are actually now dropping back. And there is good news for either first-time buyers or those who are coming up to remortgage. But rates are still far higher than when they were before the mini-budget and obviously much higher than they were a couple of years ago. I had a quick look before we started recording because quite often what's referred to is the average rates. But I thought it would be interesting to look at the best rate. So the best rate that you can get if you've got a good loan to value ratio, um, you've got good affordability. So on a two-year fix, that best rate is 5.79%. So that's effectively the cheapest that you could get a mortgage at the moment if you're in that prime position. Um, For a five-year fix, it's 5.12%. So obviously the average rates are higher than that, but I think it gives a good indication of that is your best case scenario. That's the best it's going to get. But we don't want to be all doom and gloom. Rates are falling. So HSBC, Nationwide, NatWest have all announced a fresh round of mortgage cuts. And we're expecting lots more large lenders to follow. And so this is off the back of kind of reduced expectations for interest rate hikes, for lower um, inflation figures, all feeding into these cuts. So that is good news for those who are looking down the barrel of remortgaging. Which Resolution Foundation came out with some new data today. They estimate that about half of homeowners so far haven't had to remortgage onto higher rates. So half of those with mortgages are still sitting on their cheaper fixes and have yet to face that financial hammer blow of remortgaging and seeing their monthly costs increase. But what we will see is hundreds of thousands of um, mortgage holders come to remortgage in the next year on those higher rates. And the Resolution Foundation puts it an average increase of £3,000 a year um, in the average increase in mortgage costs for homeowners, which is a huge amount of money, particularly, again, where we're talking about the average there. For many people with bigger mortgages, that will be a much higher increase that they will see. So 
some good news, some positive news that those rates are falling, but still a big financial um, burden to prepare for if you've yet to face that remortgage. Now, I think returning to that markets news, I feel like this fact might make for a great, but admittedly very geeky quiz question. So which company is Europe's most valuable and now worth more than the entire Danish economy? Well, I was fascinated when this bit of news dropped because it came on the same day with a a product that it makes became available on the NHS. I'm talking about Wigovi, which is the weight loss drug beloved of celebrities. And we're told Elon Musk that we have no confirmation of that. Um, But the company is called Novo Nordisk and it um, was lagging behind LVMH. How did I mispronounce that? The luxury conglomerate, of course, um, behind the likes of uh, Moe, Dior. Um, That had been the most valuable company, but shares in this medicine maker have absolutely shot up, tripled since the start of 2021. Now, the company is also behind Zempic, which is a diabetes treatment with similar effects to Wagovi. It tricks the body into thinking it's full, um, and therefore you end up eating less, although lots and lots of people have been saying it is absolutely no substitute for a healthy diet. But clearly, investors think that there is a huge amount of potential. So as I say, on the day that the drug became available on the NHS here in the UK, the firm closed with a stock market valuation of $338 billion. That is $10 billion more than LVMH. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of attention paid to that particular company and an awful lot more headlines about that particular drug. Now, there's another geeky fact for us, Laura, because we've got the date of the autumn statement. I know, November 22nd. Put it in your diary, Danny, and we'll all be pouring over <laughs> The news. And while this is a big event for those of us kind of in the financial world, I acknowledge that it might not be a dear diary moment for the average person out there. But I think it is interesting to look at the timing of that statement, but also it's a particularly interesting one this year leading up to a general election. So what's interesting about that November 22nd date is that it comes just a week after the latest inflation data will be published. We know that one of Rishi Sunak's key pledges on tackling the cost of living crisis was to halve inflation by the end of 2023. So that crucial uh, figure coming out a week before the autumn statement he hopes will prove that he has achieved that goal. We need inflation to be around the 5% mark by that point for him to have achieved that goal. And that's a big one for him. That is quite an embarrassing target to miss if you've set your stall out by it as the way of solving the cost of living crisis. The government, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak both said, no, we're not going to do more handouts to individuals. We're not going to do more government support. What we're really going to focus on is reducing inflation as a way to hand people back more money in their pockets. An odd claim, considering that the government isn't really directly in control of inflation. That's the Bank of England's remit. And also, there's many debates about how easy it is to control for the Bank of England anyway. 
But still, that's something that he'll be clearly focusing on and will want to, Jeremy Hunt will want to be starting his autumn statement with the claim that they have hit that target. But other things to look out for, I think the uh, state pension triple lock, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast before, it's a costly and quite controversial policy. However, I think what we're expecting to see at the autumn statement is a reiteration, a recommitment from the government that it will be sticking to that triple lock. Unsurprisingly, that is very popular with older voters. And through everything in this autumn statement, the government is going to have its eye to that general election to carry in favour with voters and to keeping them on side. It's quite a good opportunity for them to kind of set their stall out of what they plan to do. I think other things that we'll be looking out for will be some help on that housing market that we were just discussing. So additional support for first-time buyers might be something that the government wants to announce um, to help people get onto the property ladder. But also things like, are they going to reduce taxes? Are they going to kind of recommit to be the low-tax political party um, and either announce tax reductions or at least set out what their plans are for tax reductions? We know, having already referred to that mini-budget trauma from last year, (laughs) that tax cuts don't always go down well, but I'm sure this government will be taking a slightly more measured approach and I think one of the key things that we're also looking out for is any potential changes to income tax because we have seen those frozen bans drag more and more people into paying more tax. And I think whilst that kind of stealth tax method is always not so well understood by the public, I think they've grown quite wise to it now. So it might be an area that the government wants to address. And of course, After that autumn statement, we will be bringing you all of the news and the updates. And I'm sure we will have many leaks in the weeks to come, which we will cover on here. And just while you're talking about inflation, there's a term that has been doing the rounds, reflation, uh, well, reinflation, however you want to pronounce it. Um, And I think what took a lot of people by surprise was the spike in petrol prices over the summer. Do you have a car, Laura? I do. I don't actually drive it that much, which I think means that I'm not super aware of the ups and downs in petrol prices, whereas those people that commute every single day for work or you know rely on a car for their business will be all too aware of these spikes in petrol prices. Well, I nearly swallowed my tongue when I filled up my car a couple of weeks ago because it just... It, it had suddenly gone almost back up to where it had been. And the RAC um, put some numbers out a couple of days ago and drivers were hit by one of the largest monthly fuel price hikes in 23 years. So um, seven pence per litre, that was the spike in the average cost of petrol in August. Um, uh, it was a, a similar spike in diesel, eight pence a, le- a litre. And You know, this comes at a time where, of course, we are hyper aware of all these changes and the potential impact that this could have on inflation. And unfortunately, we're expecting prices at the pump to go even higher because we've had the price of a barrel of oil jump for the first time this year over $90 a barrel. This is off the back of both Russia and Saudi Arabia saying that they are going to extend 
cuts to supplies. Now, we know that OPEC has been keeping a really close eye on surprise. We know that they've wanted to keep the price of a barrel of oil fairly sort of stabilised around that $85 a barrel. Um, but this is going to cause more pain for motorists. And of course, it does then have a knock-on effect to to other things because everything has got to be driven to places. So when you're talking about the supply chain, then that does have something of an impact. So uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It really highlights that conundrum that the government has got by setting out its plan to reduce inflation to a certain level. Something like this comes along and it's inflationary, not just in the fact that people are paying more for their petrol prices, but like you say, the fact that it then has a knock-on effect and pushes up prices elsewhere. So Rishi Sunak will be unhappy on two counts. One, it will be costing him more to fill up his car. And two, he might have a very public embarrassment of missing that inflation figure. Now, we're continuing to talk about the UK government because it is vying to be the preferred place for companies to list. Now, as part of its plans to boost growth and tax revenues, it's been really taking a look at this. And with that in mind, it announced plans to shake up the listing rules to reduce the red tape. Laura spoke to James Wooden, partner and global co-head of Linklater's Equities Capital Markets, about what those changes are and the potential impact on investors. So it might feel like a bit of admin, but where a company is listed has an impact on the shareholder, the company and the countries involved. So first up, let's look at it from a UK point of view. Why does the UK want companies to be listing here rather than anywhere else? It's a great, it's a great question. And, and the, there are different aspects to it. The first really is that the stock market um, is very much a sort of shop window for, uh, for the country. Um, how do we position ourselves on the global stage as the venue for the convening of capital where great companies meet great investors? Um, so part of it, is, as I say, is a, a shop window, which is really the reason why it gets such, so much political um, airtime, because it's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a very public-facing um, element of, of UK PLC, as we refer to it as. Um, just as importantly, there is an ecosystem that comes with a listing venue. So for every company that's listed in the UK, there needs to be a whole set of infrastructure that comes with it in the advisory community, the financial services community, people writing research, um, people putting trades through investors and, and, and everything that comes to back that up, that flows through into tax revenue flows through into jobs um, as well. And it's very much that that's been sort of the heart of the strategy of the City of London for um, as long as anyone can remember. And so that's quite clear of kind of why it matters to the countries involved. But for shareholders, does it make a huge difference then where a company is listed? So if we think about, you know, the UK and the US are the biggest markets, I would assume. Um, Does it make a difference to them in that? It does. So, So what shareholders are looking for um, is really the same thing as as, as um, regulators are trying to create, which is the perfect balance between shareholder protections, which go into things like transparency and governance, and when do you get a vote as a shareholder, and what is it that companies and directors are allowed to do with your company. That on one side, with on the other side, value. 
and the value that companies can can create in the form of dividends or or or, um, or capital gains in, in share prices and so on. And, and the second half of that is often pushes um, you to create more flexibility, more freedom for companies to take steps to grow the business. The first bit of it is about shelter protection. So, so now for the last 20, 30 years, what the UK has been tried, tried to position itself as is the gold standard of governance and shelter protections. We've got fantastically advanced um, legal regime. Um, uh, English law being something that we export very successfully all, all the way around the world. Um, and then we, we've had the, the European standards on uh, imposed by membership of the European Union on things like prospectuses and shelter rights and so on. And then we chose to overlay on top of that a super equivalent regime. We put our own stamp of, of, of quality. So to be a listed company in the UK, you had to do more. You had to adhere to higher standards than was the case automatically in the rest of Europe. And, and, and so what, when, when all that works well, it creates a virtuous circle um, because the best investors feel confident investing here and paying the best prices because they get the best protections. And with that come the best investment into companies and then companies grow here. And that, 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 that as I say, that's a virtuous circle that, that, that keeps improving. And then the more companies that list here, the more peer companies there are. So other companies look at those and then investors come and so on. That's what happens. But the same thing can happen. If you get that balance slightly wrong, you can start to spiral in, in, in the other direction. Um, and exactly what the UK regulators are looking at now is, is, is there a need for a little bit of rebalancing on those two sides of the equation? And so with companies, will they just be looking to list where their peer group have listed or maybe where they're based, um, where their headquarters are? Or are there more factors that come into play when they're weighing up whether to, I mean, the big debate at the moment, obviously, is whether to list in the UK or move that listing to the US or initially list in the US? Yeah, look, look, we'll come back to the US-UK debate in in a second if that's okay. But well-advised companies, when they're thinking about where to list in the first place at the point of IPO, take into account a whole range of, of factors. And for each individual company, any one of these might be more or less important. But so, so like access to the right investors. Um, so part of that is just where are the big, where are the deepest pools of capital? The US has the biggest pools of capital in the world. The UK has the biggest pools of capital in Europe. Asia has pockets of capital and so on. But that doesn't mean that'll be the same investors for, the, for every company. So historically, for example, the US has had a very strong um, affiliation, strong investor base, great expertise, and research coverage and analyst coverage and so on in for, for tech and biotech and life sciences. Traditionally, the UK has been very, very strong in financial services in resources companies and construction and, and so on. Um, so part of it is just wh- where can you get easiest access to the right kind of investors? Um, these are all linked, but these are all sort of sides of the same prism. Another one is where are the peer companies? So I talked about that virtuous circle. The more companies that are like you that are listed uh, in a particular venue, you'll get the right investors, you'll get the right analysts writing research on you and, and, and so on, the best sort of infrastructure around it. There are then other related points like index inclusion. In the UK, can you get into the FTSE index? That, that matters because you get a lot of passive investor demand, people who buy FTSE trackers automatically invest in FTSE companies. There are indices all over the world who do similar things, Standard and Poor's in the US, for example. There's then things like, well, what's the regulatory regime like? Um, is it in, in we talk, talk about continuing obligations. Once you're listed, how easy is it to be a listed company? Um, we have to a super equivalent. There are rules that apply in the UK that don't apply in Europe, for example, and in, in the US. 
But then in the US, we talk about litigation risk. You're much, much more likely to be sued as a class action litigation for securities um, issues in, in, in the US than you are anywhere else in, in, in the UK or in Europe. The, so wrapped all of that in, in, into is a sort of softer question of almost a like brand affiliation, you know, where do people think of your company as being based? Um, because IPOs, as well as being an investment event, are also a brand event. So, so there's a chance to get your paper, your your company on the on the back page of the paper. And so, so where do you want to be? Where do your customers do you look and feel like a UK business? Do you look and feel like a US business? Um, and that could be linked to what you're exactly what sector you're in. It might be linked to politics. It might you know, the identity of your founder. You know, who knows? All those things go into a big pot. And then you make a decision as to what's what's best for the company and for the shareholders. And so then if we circle back to that kind of more current US, UK debate, um, where we've seen quite a few headlines recently of, of companies either eyeing up moving to a New York listing um, or having already done it. Um, why is that particularly the case at the moment? Why are we seeing more headlines around that? Yeah, the headlines are the right word, and it's a, there's a danger in reading too much into that. So, but it, undeniably, it's a, it's become a discussion point uh, over the last um, 12 months, in particular. So, look, it's always been the case that there's been a competitive landscape in exchanges. So, we talk about different sectors and so on, but it's always been every uh, large successful company has a choice of places to list and take into account all the factors that we talked about um, before. Um, there's been a sort of longish term trend of growth companies, pre-IPO growth companies, being financed in their late stages pre-IPO by US money. Um, and that's in particular in the tech sector. Um, big pools of uh, venture capital and other money, so, uh, patient capital in the US that makes has been, has been yeah, they've, they've been ahead of the game, ahead of the UK, ahead of everyone in the world in terms of those kind of investments. And when you when you have a US shareholder base, um, it, it makes the US a more a more automatic choice, even for a UK company. So that's been part of it. With that's been coupled with some poor performance of uh, aftermarket performance of of UK IPO companies, particularly the tech sector. Some of them very high profile, um, and n- n- not all for um, you know they all had their own reasons. Not it's not it's not necessarily you can't just look at that and say well it's all the fault of the UK market. But that that was a trend of. 2022 in particular, we then had the high-profile uh, decision of ARM to, to to choose the US again. Very much had its own reasons. A lot of politics sitting in the background, um, and then you had the stories of some some UK listed already listed companies choosing um, to look to move to the US. So, so but that, that that's all on that's what why we why we're we talking about it. Um, but it's important to remember that the fact that the US is a is a, a is chosen as a as a more appropriate listing venue for some companies does not mean that it's the right venue for every company. Um, and if you look at the companies that have chosen to move um, to who are already listed here, they've all got some particular reason why actually the US makes more sense as a home. If you're a, um, a non-UK offshore um, sort of gambling media company, well, you have no more link to the UK than to the US. It, um, Ferguson was a, a high-profile case, but it had effectively sold its UK business and becoming a much more US-focused one. So, there's, you know, have we seen uh, a, a group of, of core UK businesses deciding it's they'd be get, they're getting better valuations in the US? No, that hasn't happened, and I don't, don't see that happening. The reason why it should happen, 
Um, and if you then look at, well, some of the, which companies on the IPO, of the IPO co cohorts of, sort of 2019 onwards, look at the UK and European companies that have chosen to list in the US rather than in the UK and look at their aftermarket performance and really hasn't been any better. In fact, it's been comparatively worse than, than their peers who listed in the UK. So, so the, the, there is a danger of reading too much into the headlines and uh, creating more of a story that, for, for London than, than needs to be the case. But undeniably, there are things that can be done, which the government has absolutely re re recognised, and that's what's driving um, a lot of the reforms that are in the pipeline at the moment. Yeah, and let's talk about those rural reforms. I mean, you talked at the top about why governments want more companies to to list in their country and why that's a great kind of shop front, but also crucially at the moment, a revenue generator, a tax generator. Um, so could you maybe talk through some of those changes that the government has announced in trying to reform those listing rules and, and talk a bit about how they might impact companies? Sure. So, so there's been a... Um... Uh, almost a sort of philosophical shift, a, a mindset shift from from the regulators in in how they're thinking about the the regime here, um, and and I, and I should say at this point, the, the the changes to the rules, changing the regulations here is only a part of what it will take to reinvigorate the the the, the equity markets. But let's stick with it at the moment. So so the 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 change in mindset is um, allow more flexibility for companies. Stop thinking that every that, that regulation is the answer to everything that has gone wrong allow for the concept that with good disclosure people can investors can take informed risks they can always choose as long as they've got the right information they can choose whether to invest uh, or, or not and so you pass a little bit of of, of say informed risk onto the investor you take a little bit away from regulation and at the same time what you try to then do is identify what are the factors, the regulatory factors that, that companies and founders and shareholders said were reasons to list somewhere other than the UK? And what were those? Well, they were things like dual class share structures, um, traditionally very difficult to get into the premium list and therefore the FTSE index in the UK with a dual class share structure. And by that, I mean um, some shares which have more votes than other shares. It's very popular in the US um, for particularly founder backed companies where founders want to retain founders or a, a, any group of shareholders want to retain a degree of uh, additional control over the businesses that they've set up. So we then saw in the, in the, in the, uh, the, 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 the bumper IPO year of 2021, we saw a range of tech companies, Hut Group and Wise and Oxford Nanopore and Deliveroo and so on, all, all lifting with different variants on, uh, on a dual class share structure. So the government has increased, the regular looking increased the amount of flexibility that companies have. Well, that's one. Another one is um, free float rules have already changed. So you, until recently, it was the case that in order to again to get into this premium list, the list that with the with the highest levels of liquidity and and valuations in the UK, you you would you you had to have a minimum free float. Or you had to sell if you were a shell. You had to sell at least twenty five percent of the business. Now, and that, and that, that was and that was something that people said. Well, I'm I'm willing to take a little bit of a haircut on my valuation at the point of IPO, traditional kind of IPO discount. But I, but I really don't want to do that if I'm selling, I have to sell as much as 25%. So now you can IPO a business with 10%. And that, that was a, so the government is one by one, or the regulator, actually, one by one, going through the, the areas of regulation which people said were barriers to entry. Um, the, the ones that are coming now, are still in the pipeline now, are being discussed, are things like um, 
the, the, the requirement in the current rules for shareholder votes for large transactions. So if you're a listed premium listed company at the moment and you want to buy a, uh, a, an asset, another business or another company that's worth more than 25% of your existing size, you have to get shareholder approval. The, when you work to what that, what that means in practice, it can make UK companies uncompetitive in global auctions because they'll need shareholder approval when private equity houses or, or companies listed overseas won't have. So they're looking at removing that. Um, they're looking at removing some of the burden on um, if you want to raise more capital, how often do you need to produce a full prospectus? They're just trying to take some of the friction out of uh, some of the headache out of being a listed company and make it make it easier to access the capital that 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 is there that is there and ready to be invested. So that's 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 so that's that's part of that whole package of reforms. W will that be enough um, to to say to sort of re-energize things? Well, I think that depends on a whole bunch of more macro factors, more cultural, bigger picture factors, which are really outside the remit of a regulator's change. And so we talked before about kind of the balance between, you know, being attractive to a company, but also providing enough shareholder protections. Is there a concern that in making these changes to make the UK a more attractive place for companies to list that you end up eating away at some shareholder protections or some rights that then puts them at a disadvantage than where they were previously? Yeah, so it, that, that, that's exactly the line that the regulators are trying to tread. Um, and, uh, you know, every... People talk as though the buy side, i.e. the investment community, has one voice on this, whereas the truth is it's very nuanced. There's a whole range of different opinions. Even within a single organization, a single investment institution, you might get someone uh, in, on the commercial side, investment side, who with, with one view about a company and what they can do, and then you might get someone in their corporate governance or compliance arm with another view. Uh, and so the, the, it, there's absolutely not a single homogenous view about what the right way to do it is. Um, but it's important to bear in mind, if we're in a globally competitive landscape, um, investors, um, where we are imposing rules on companies here, which do not apply if you're listed in New York or in Amsterdam or in Frankfurt or Paris, we do have to stop and at least ask why they're important here. Uh, and, and if, in fact, the, 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 the investment trends of the last 10 years have shown that despite these gold standard protections for investors and shareholders, actually investment in the equity market, UK equity markets is declining. You've got to stop and think, well, is it, are we, have we been approaching it the right way? Which is exactly what the regulator is doing and is getting, seeking lots and lots of input from all sides to make sure we try and get that balance right. And so what's your outlook for the UK listing market? Where do you think in a couple of years time, where do you think we'll be? And do you think that there will be enough kind of meaningful change so that the headlines have switched and, and the UK is then seen as the premium place to, to list versus the US or elsewhere? Uh, look, I, 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 I hope so. And I, and I genuinely believe so. So what, why do I think that? Well, so one, one of the factors that has been affecting um, so to, successful IPO markets are driven by a meeting of the right investors with the right capital spend and the right companies. Um, do we have the right companies? Yes, absolutely. The UK remains a fantastic place to found and uh, and, and grow businesses in, in tech, in fintech, in biotech, in all sorts of areas, and in more more traditional industries as well. So and th so those companies haven't gone anywhere, and in fact, they're, they're more are being created every day with you know coming out of universities, coming out of um, all, all sorts of areas. We're a fantastic, innovative place um, to be. 
we have a, we have the infrastructure here, which enables them to grow the advisory communities, the financial services, the legal services, the consultancy services are all here with fantastically highly skilled workforce. So that side of the equation is I have full confidence in. It's going to be absolutely fine. It, 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 what about the investment and the market side of it? Well, one of the a great steps being taken now to change the rules in a way that or to refine the rules in a way that creates the most competitive environment possible. Secondly, one of the factors that has driven um, a little bit of a, a of the downturn in, in, the, in the prominence of the equity market investment community is that is that for, for the for the longest time now um, debt has been very cheap. So if you're a company looking to either raise money or to 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 be sellers looking to sell a business, um, the, the rise of private equity, of venture capital, a lot of debt available for people made it very made, made the M&A market, the private M&A market, um, a, a, a very very strong. So, but if you're in that position now, interest rates have gone up. Um, it, it, it's it's altogether a different world in terms of raising leverage and looking to sell your company through that route. So, in a in in the mature global economy that we live in, I continue to believe strongly that the public equity markets will have a role they will have a role as things find as things find um as things find their level so um i i, I as i say and I, I i have every confidence that that's what's going to happen there have been plenty of um ipo windows that have opened and shut over the last 20 30 years um and and what about the uk's position in the world I think with a with a period of political stability that we'd all like, um, and uh, the, the the ability to use the regulatory freedom that comes with uh, our exit from the European Union, um, if we make the right decisions and play our cards right, there's absolutely no reason why we can't be a, a continue to be a really strong force on the global stage. Are we ever in the short term going to have depths of pools of capital as deep as in the US? No, of course not. They're a much bigger country. But, but that, that doesn't mean we failed in some way. Um, what we do need to do is keep providing um, the, the, the best possible environment for, I say, this convention of capital, for, for, for investors to meet the right companies. And, and there's, there's a lot of reasons to think why we should have every confidence that that will happen. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. I think that would be really useful for investors. So I appreciate your time. Thanks. That's everything for this week. Thanks a lot for joining us. As always, you can check out the AJ Bell website and the Shares Magazine website for more news and analysis of everything investing. And we'll be back next time. So see you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.